Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2014 Wes Anderson film, The Grand Budapest Hotel. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Sam. Highlight of my week. <laughs> this was a really fun movie to watch. I'd seen this before. Um, I'm curious, what is your history with this film? And more largely, what is your history with Wes Anderson? Yeah, um, this film, I, I'm i pretty sure I saw it in the theater when it came out in 2014. I'm trying to think. I've probably seen about half of his films in the theater, probably about half of the films on, on DVD. Um, I think probably my first experience with Anderson was seeing Royal Tenenbaums in the theater. And then I kind of backed up and did Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. And then after that, I just kind of kept up with them as they came out. Um, I'm almost the exact same story for me. I, we saw Tenenbaums in the theater and loved it. I think my wife had, my wife was most aware of it. And she's like, oh, we should go see this. Mostly, I think she heard about the soundtrack to it. and was mm. like, it's, it sounds really great. And then we went back and watched Rushmore and Bottle Rocket. And I've seen most of his other, there's a couple I haven't seen just because they haven't sort of crossed my paths. But I know I definitely saw Grand Budapest in the in the theater because at that point, Wes Anderson was uh, was appointment viewing for Ann and I. So mm-hmm. um, definitely saw that. Now, here's one of the things that I find interesting about Wes Anderson is that for somebody who makes the, the movie, I mean, it's not like he makes huge, big blockbuster movies, but he's oddly a divisive filmmaker, or at least somebody that have people have very distinct opinions about. And I think there's lots of filmmakers that people just don't really have an opinion on. Why Wes Anderson? Why is he somebody that that is either divisive or at least people have strong opinions about? Well, yeah, I, I think people have strong opinions on, about him, although I'm not sure he's as divisive as some filmmakers. I think it was uh, in his review of the French Dispatch that um, A.O. Scott said something like people dislike Wes Anderson the way some people dislike Cilantro and Campari. So it's not exactly, you know, I don't think he's exactly in the I hate, hate, hate that movie category. But you're right. He, he can be pretty close. I, I think I think part of the thing with Anderson is that um, he's so consistent in the way that he makes his films that once you've decided you don't like that style, however you want to characterize it, I think it, I think it can become tiresome for people. In fact, most Anderson uh, his supporters can also be Anderson detractors. I mean, A.O. Scott's a great example because in his review of Grand Budapest Hotel, he talks about how you can kind of both like and be irritated by Anderson at, at the same time. So I think there's something about the distinctiveness of his sensibility and that very kind of consistent visual style that gets you saying, I know what I'm going to get, and there's some things I might like about it, but some things where I might kind of sigh and say, oh, yes. There's Wes Anderson going again. There, there's Wes Anderson composing a frame. There's the typical Wes Anderson color palette. There's the typical use of stop motion action or miniaturization. So a lot of it, I think, has to do with that. He's kind of a genre in himself. And, 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 and sometimes I think when he does that, it, a lot of it depends on the material, whether it hits the right note or not. So, for example, I think Grand Budapest Hotel is pretty perfect. I had a really hard time with Darjeeling Limited. It just it 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 didn't it didn't interest me at all. Yeah, for me, the one that that I struggle with the most was is the Life Aquatic. Mm-hmm. I've I've watched it once and I've tried and I didn't really like it and I tried to watch it again and I just have a hard time getting into it. Is that one worth worth the work in your mind? I've only seen it once and I liked it, but. Um, so I, I'm going to say, yeah, it might be worth the work to get back into it. Of course, okay. of course, I'm a sucker for Kate Blanchett, um, and so that that makes a big difference for me. 
Well, and I, it's interesting, your answer to that question helped me kind of crystallize, I think, a little bit about how I think about this, which is, I think there are people who wouldn't say they don't like, um, they they may not like a movie of his, but I think it's it's not that they don't like his movies. They don't, I don't think they don't like him. Like they don't like his stuff. So like, like they don't even have to see the movie. They can see the trailer and be like, like you're saying, it has all these pieces that are, and, and, and they're in his, he's got great trailers, but they're in the trailer. You know what you're getting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. So maybe let's talk about what makes, uh, what makes a Wes Anderson movie a Wes Anderson movie to you? you I mean, you 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 alluded to some of these things, but maybe we yeah. can lay this out a little more. Yeah, there's 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 a moment in, uh, in in Moonrise Kingdom that I think really kind of encapsulates it, and it's where it's a shot of a house, and it's like the the wall's been taken off, and you see each of the characters in their little separate frames. So the first thing I think about a Wes Anderson film is the way in which almost every shot is framed in almost a theatrical way. And there's a kind of static quality about it. it it's, it's, the, it's, it's a composition. And so I think that that's one of the things that characterizes the films is this kind of really um, deliberately composed frame. So to me, that's one of, one of the things that you get a, a lot of. It's often kind of very densely packed. Um, I mean, I, I found myself a few times re-watching Grand Budapest Hotel and, and, free, and uh, freezing the frame so I could kind of take in what was, what was going on in, in there. At the same time, you often get these kind of traveling shots in which the, car- in which the camera kind of glides along uh, the characters. Uh, you know, Scott says kind of like a low-flying, uh, low-flying bird. Uh, the other thing you get with him is um, a lot of old-fashioned effects. Like, uh, you know, the stop motion animation, the matte paintings, the rear projection, and of course, most prominently in Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, a lot of use of miniatures. And so there's a kind of a deliberate artifice. I Maybe that's another way to think about Anderson. There's a real deliberate artifice. He calls attention to the fact that you are watching a film. And I think that can be the kind of thing that can both delight you because you are both enjoying the artifice and realizing that it's artificial at the same time, or on the other hand, it can sometimes alienate you. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about his, his the way he frames the shot. Um, I, I, I thought a lot about this. I watched this movie a couple times this, uh, this week and what it is, is uh, he, it's like he frames shots in one point perspective where the vanishing point is the dead center of the frame. So yes. if like you're looking at a room, the back wall of the room is perfectly centered in in the in the frame and the vanishing point for all lines is that center point and then he often places the character at that center point and they address the camera directly. So so I mean it is it is so meticulously put together in that way and every shot looks like that it, you sent me this morning um an snl parody of uh of a wes anderson trailer if he did a horror movie and it's it's interesting because all of the things that i wrote down in terms of stylistic things it's so easy to parody because he has such a distinct way it makes me want it, this is not a movie that makes me want to make a movie because this looks really hard but it's a movie that makes me want to take photographs i want to try to frame things frame rooms up the way he does where where you're you're really focusing on the center vanishing point and building things around that um and then the other thing you talked about is camera movements i think partially what it is is that there is i don't think there is a handheld shot in any of this everything is very um mm. i mean i don't even know that they're steady cams i think mm. they're dolly shots yeah. and they're everything is meticulous you feel like you're watching a the way the camera moves is like this precisely built um, 
old-timey watch, right? Everything is perfectly perfectly set up to stop at a specific moment and it'll and because because when you watch where that camera moves and glides and then it stops locked into one of those perfectly framed scenes so i love when it moves from one perfectly framed scene the camera starts to glide like that low flying bird and it locks in on another perfectly framed scene um and and it's so so things like that that he does you know so 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 he's so conscious of what the center, the dead center of the frame is and builds things around that. So, so, um, so, so he has, this helps create that, that distinct uh, visual style. Um, and then, like you said, the production design of these, it, it, it's, it's very exterior. Like you can, it's, it's not trying to hide the fact that this is a miniature, you know, like, like he almost, I mean, it's almost like watching a kid play with his dolls, right? This is a dollhouse that we're in. And so we get this, you know, the way you described the Moonrise Kingdom shot, like that actually just sounds like a dollhouse, right? Like you're mm-hmm. seeing these things. And I think that's, um, it's such an, it's such an interesting, like you said, consistent visual, uh, visual thing there. Is there anybody who this reminds you of? I mean, is he just unique to himself or is he in a tradition of someone? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to make a connection that's, that's going to sound a little bit bizarre, um, but he reminds me, and I'm not sure he's actually been influenced by him, but he reminds me in some ways of Stanley Kubrick, uh, in that he uh, Kubrick is the same kind of um, meticulous craftsman with some very kind of distinctive visual elements, and yet the tone and the nature of Kubrick's films are very different from from Anderson's. Um, I mean, and Anderson has cited a lot of um, uh, a lot of influences from classic uh, directors to um, Indian directors like Rai. Uh, but I so for but to me there's there's an element of of Kubrick, and then um, okay, this is going to be another bizarre connection that I was going to make. Um, when I watched this film, I kept thinking about um, *Inglorious Bastards* uh, by Tarantino, because I also think that the two of them—and this is more about sensibility than it is about visual style—but the two of them are willing to tackle serious subjects, in this case, history and Holocaust, and give it kind of a, a kind of a comic sort of twist to it. Um, so those are not really, well, so Kubrick is visual, Tarantino is kind of, kind of thematic. The other, the other person I might group him with is I discovered in the course of my research that somebody has, at least somebody has dubbed, uh, a tradition they're calling American eccentric cinema, which, uh, they're putting Charlie Kaufman, uh, and Spike Jones in, in that, in that category. So that might be another way to think about Anderson. He's kind of, he kind of has kind of an eccentric vision, but at the same time, he's raising kind of serious questions about ethics and morality, family breakdown, social alienation, those th- sorts of things. It's really interesting because some of the names you brought up are stuff that as I was racking my brain, I kind of, I, I came up with as well. I thought about Kubrick in, in some of the precision, um, some of the design, I mean, th- th- there are moments of design things, but also this takes place in a hotel with long tracking shots down hallways in a hotel. <laughs> yes. It's like, well, there's a little bit of shining here. And even if you look at, in the 1985 scenes, the Tom Wilkinson scenes, at the end they show him in a different part of that room, and he and the wallpaper on the room makes me think of the carpet in The Shining. So <laughs> there, there were moments where I was thinking about The Shining here. the The Tarantino one's interesting because another thing that this movie has, which doesn't necessarily line up with other things from Anderson, is like is the it's a a, a very it's a movie with a lot of like 
a great script and great talking and people saying great things. And then it has weird punctuations of violence that Tarantino likes to do as well. Uh, so that the, this, there, th- this film, not all Anderson films, but this one has a little bit of that feel where there's moments where you're like, Oh my gosh, that person just had his fingers ripped off, you know, by a door or there's a severed head now, you know? So mm-hmm. like there are some of these, the, the violence is pretty shocking because so much of this movie doesn't have that and even though tarantino is known for like pretty violent movies a lot of big chunks of his movies aren't violent mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden the violence comes in that i mean you think about um once upon a time in hollywood is the greatest mm-hmm. example of that with tarantino where you almost forget you're watching mm-hmm. somebody who has violence in it and then all of a sudden it all happens at the end of that mm-hmm. um one of the things that I find interesting about this movie, I don't know if you've seen any of this, but um, this is this is the, so this is the movie after he made Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is a completely stop anim- stop motion mm-hmm. animation film, um, and and I know some folks have said like that's actually the perfect version of a Wes Anderson movie because that's what he does with his actors anyhow mm-hmm. is basically he want um, I know Ray Fiennes talked about how in some ways difficult this movie was because his the way he likes to act, you know, involves a little bit of kind of improvisation on the, in the moment. And he said, well, this, this leaves no room for that mm-hmm. because Anderson actually put together an, an entire uh, animatic of this movie. Have you seen any of the, no, I, I've only heard about it. I've not seen it. There's chunks of it on YouTube. I watched a little mm-hmm. bit of it this morning and it's really fascinating to think about process, you know, so like you can, watch the opening five minutes of this movie uh, at least on this animatic that's on youtube and it's it's fascinating because it's sort of like it's sort of like you watched the movie it, it's all narrated by um by anderson does all the parts in his narrative but but the shots the conception of the shots are all there the it's it's mostly about kind of the camera movements and the framing um but but i think that is that says something about what he's like as a filmmaker that it's not just storyboarded but an animatic is like the next level up from a storyboard because he's already putting in the camera movements and really and and shot by shot by shot kind of not just what it's going to look like but how we're going to move from one thing to another so i i I highly encourage people to Mm. um to look for that um another thing i thought about the the second time I watched this this week is that I tend to think of Anderson movies as comedies, mm. and this movie is very very funny. Um, but as I watched it last night, I was struck by how very sad this movie is. Um, and and you know I realized that you know you don't have to sort of pick a genre for a movie, but um, but I I was my overall takeaway when I watched it last night is I felt very sad by the end of it. Um, and I felt like the core of this movie, which is a very funny movie has a very heartbreaking, um, heartbreaking sadness and kind of loneliness in the middle of it. And I found that really interesting that I feel like that didn't land with me when I watched it in the theaters, I wouldn't have walked out saying that, but, but now that's the overall takeaway I get from it. Well, it's really interesting you say that, uh, Sam, because there's a really good visual. There's actually it's a series of visual essays on Anderson on the ebert.com site. And the one that I watched uh, a couple of days ago is by uh, Matt Seitz. And he starts out by saying all of Wes Anderson's films are comedies and none are. And then he says, with each successive viewing, a, a funny, really not so funny thing happens. The veil of lightness lifts to reveal a film that would be unbearably sad if it weren't cushioned by comedy and dolled up with spectacle. So I, I think that's exactly right, that they are, they are surface comedies 
and there are tragedies under underneath. And the, the more you look at them, the more you think about what's going on, the more you realize that that's what's happening. And 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 the way Anderson deals with it is is really interesting. Like you know, how how do we learn about the end of uh, Gustav? Right. All we hear is it, it, in the end they shot him. Of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it's like almost this this anticlimax, which is. Um, partly how he maintains that balance because he doesn't want us to think oh the story of gustav is ultimately tragic as he gets shot he wants us to think about what what did he do before his death what was wonderful about his life what was ultimately admirable admirable about him but at the same time and 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 he kills off agatha in the same way right just just three sentences about how she dies of this absurd little little disease so that's always kind of under the surface he always acknowledges that but then he tries to kind of temper it or counteract it with the humor mm-hmm. yeah i think about tenenbaums at the end of tenenbaums there there's this moment where uh ben stiller is talking to gene hackman they're sitting on the curb after all this crazy stuff has happened and it's just this moment where he turns to his dad and says it's been a really hard year and it's like this tiny little moment and but to me it's you know, when you watch that movie for a third or fourth time you and you get through all the like really funny stuff that you love, you're like, oh, that's that's like a really effective moment. And it it makes me think back on everything else that's happened in that movie and to say like, yeah, this is a movie with like a suicide attempt and all of these other things happening, you know, and this this person has lost his, you know, lost his wife and he's struggling. So like, like, I think those little moments in the same way this movie ends with those little moments. I was talking with my wife um, and she actually, this is where I was thinking about Anderson being divisive. She was talking with some colleagues at work about having just seen Grand Budapest Hotel and was excited to see the French Dispatch. And she was taken aback by how many people were adamantly opposed to Wes Anderson at this. Uh, this is a bunch of teachers um, at lunchtime. And my wife's observation was even though his films are sort of meticulously designed, the production design and all of this stuff is so stylized. She says at the core for her, like the, the affecting moments are sort of more real than other moments. So, so the, this idea that this story, you know, it, it, all this stuff happens, but then it's like, you know what? Like people die, people die in tragic ways. People die in sudden, I mean, um, they, I guess both deaths at the end are tragic, but they're different kinds of tragic. One is tied to the war and the other is just, mm-hmm. you know what? People get sick and they die and they die young. And, um, and so she said, like, like those moments seem so emotionally real and in some ways almost more real because they're surrounded by all of this hyper stylized uh, visual stuff. Um, and, and even the way people talk, you know, is, is a, a, in a stylized kind of way. Uh, and that that hit me pretty hard as I watched this and thought I, there is something to that with me. Well, you know, we've talked in the past, Sam, about films that um, either kind of mix genres or or skirt lines you know that is films that walk a razor's edge between falling one way or, or, or another and you know a really early film that we talked about last year for example um uh you know the the film about um oh shoot now my my mind is just gone um the doll the, the film with the with with the, with the doll the uh um Oh gosh. Anyway, um, I'll, it'll come. It'll come to me. But we 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 talked we talked about the fact that um, you know you have a film where if it it could go into tragedy or in or into comedy, and you have to kind of walk that uh, that kind of razor thin line. I think what's a little what's similar but different about Anderson is that 
you don't really realize in a sense that he is actually dealing with two different genres kind of simultaneously. And I think there are some people that feel as though if you're going to deal with a really serious film, you should theme, you should make a serious film. Or if you're going to, um, Lars and the Real Girls, what I was trying to think of. Um, or if you're dealing with a comic theme, you need to make a comedy. I mean, because Hollywood in general doesn't play to mixing genres, right? Hollywood plays to, oh, you're going to go see an action film. You're going to go see a comedy. You're gonna... Whereas I think that what Anderson does, I think for some people, it's almost, it's, it's confusing or it's almost offensive, right? It's almost like, well, if you're really going to talk about that issue, you can't do it this way. Um, or I think about another film like Life is Beautiful, which, you know, some people think pulls off comedy as a way to deal with tragedy brilliantly and other people find the film completely offensive so i think that's sort of what you're playing into with uh, with anderson yeah and that was one of the big critiques of i remember when this movie came out was like is he making light of fascism the rise of fascism and the nazis and these you know these types of things because it's like not exactly that but it's so clearly it so clearly is that um, one of the things that i found interesting about this movie that I had forgotten. I knew that there was sort of story within a story framing device, but I forgot how deep into the sort of um, nesting doll you get. I forgot. And in even some of the reviews when they, they, they talk about this, you know, kind of parenthetical parentheses inside of parentheses of a story that they don't even talk about the most outer parentheses of the, uh, the girl presumably in, modern day going to see the either the monument or the i don't know if it's the the tomb of the um of the author um but we have we have so we have like a modern frame we have a 1986 frame or 85 frame we have a 1968 frame and all that goes back to 1932 um which i thought is such an interesting way to tell this story uh, what was your thoughts of, about like kind of the meaning of that that, that framing device? A couple of things. First of all, um, I'm going to ride one of my little hobby horses and say that that kind of story within the story within the story um, goes all the way back to Joseph Conrad. Uh, and, I, and I don't know if that was a literary influence for Anderson. I'm sure he's read Conrad. But um, Conrad's novel Chance is, a, is, a, is an example of a, of a narrative so, so thickly nested that, that even Henry James said it was a little bit too much. Uh, but I think it's it's an example of how Anderson actually applies literary techniques in the same way that he applies fine art techniques to to cinema. Um, I, I think I think part of what's going on there is um, one of the critics I read about the film said that it kind of suggests that stories are a kind of inheritance. You know, it's like a story is something you get passed on. So 30, 1932 gets passed on in 1985, and that gets, that, get, that gets passed forward as well. And then, of course, at the end, you know, where the girl has the book, which, of course, is the book of the film we've just seen. I think, I think to me, that's the idea that from 1932 all the way up to the present telling of the story, these narratives have, have persisted. These become, these become something that we continue to possess and value despite what forces like fascism and war and death can do, these things, these things still persist. We also have to mention an obvious thing, just lit cinematically, that um, uh, Anderson keeps changing the aspect ratio uh, every time we move to a different time period. Um, and I just think that's a, that's a it's not an un completely unusual technique, but it's a nice one. 
Well, it's interesting to think because the the first thing that we see the the Tom Wilkinson when I didn't recognize Tom Wilkinson either, no, I didn't either. at first. He's <laughs> um, an actor I very much like, but I, it was only after the fact that I realized that's who that was. Um, you know, he's in the 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 talk he's giving. I can't tell if he's if this is what he's writing in the book. Like if this is like his preface. Mm to telling this story is about how stories come if you sort of like if you're if you're a writer and you're paying attention the stories don't come out of you but the stories come to you you know so 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 that that he is a, a character on the periphery of the story that we're about to be hearing you know which which goes back and then you think about this what what i find interesting is so the 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 movie starts with her going to this cemetery and clearly over the course of time since his author's death, the tradition is to bring your to bring hotel keys and hang them there, which is interesting to think about because that would make sense to do at Gustav's tomb if he had one. But it's interesting to think that this is what they're doing for this author. And the author is somebody we actually know very little about. Like he's he's there at, sort of to, you know, hear this story from from zero. Um, and, uh, and, but then pass this along through this book. So it is his story, even though his tie to this hotel is just that he was there in the late sixties. Um, you know, we get some, some other like indications about like this, this was this lonely, difficult moment in his life. But then I find it interesting that in 1985, he has, uh, clearly he has a family, right? Cause there are these kids around, whether they're his grandkids or, late in life so like like we don't know anything about the jude law tom wilkinson character but we get these little little indications of that which leads me to what i want to think about which is like if somebody asked you kind of what is this movie about because there's lots of different themes i think you could pull out of this and say this is what, what i think is central to that what what are the things that that come to mind for you i think it's a movie about loss and i think it's a movie about idealization so, and, and there's kind of two moments I would, I, would, I would point to, and they both come towards the end in thinking about that. And one is when, when Zero talks about, um, about Gustav and how the world that Gustav was born into was gone when he had disappeared before he even came on the scene. That Gustav represents a kind of idealization of, of, of civilization. Um, and in that sense, I think that's one of the ways in which the film draws on um, a little bit of uh, Stefan Zweig, um, because Zweig is kind of credited with the person who sort of created the myth of the Habsburg Empire and what kind of kind of an ideal civilization that that was. So I think there's a way in which uh, Gustav, he kind of he kind of represents a sort of ideal of a civilized, maybe a civilized veneer but an idea of, of, of some kind of civilized elegance. And he talks about, you know, maintaining decency in the midst of this huge slaughterhouse we call humanity. So I think that's one of the themes of the film. That is this whole and very Conradian theme as well, right? The idea of civilization versus what's under the surface. But the other thing I think it's about is it's, it's about Agatha and it's about, about Zero's loss. And it's about the fact that life inevitably involves loss, uh, loss of, affection, loss of fortune, loss of uh, security, loss of love. And, and, and we're always kind of fighting a rear guard action against, against that loss. And something like uh, the writer's book about the Budapest Hotel or the film itself becomes a kind of, uh, a kind of stay against that loss, almost a kind of cathar a catharsis. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that idea. I love the idea of the sort of thinking about the, the, 
the passage of time because this movie because it has these framing devices also allows us to see the passage of time the way the hotel has physically changed from 1932 to 1968 um and one, one of my favorite jokes about that, that that runs throughout this movie if you pay attention to it that has to do with this kind of like trying to hold on to this past civilization is gustav and gustav has this penchant for like breaking into poetry and he yes. teaches this to zero and zero teaches this to agatha and if you pay attention whenever he or anybody else starts to break into poetry like the world gets in the way of it like they never finish they it's like it's, it's almost like there's this moment where he's they're about to say this poetic profound thing they get a couple <laughs> verses in and then it's like oh but there's the alarm so we have to run i'm i love what you're doing but we have to do this and or the you know the police show up or something and it happens constantly throughout the movie except at the very end agatha gets to complete her thought um right before uh right before their uh, he's arrested and he's arrested mm -hmm. and killed, but it, but that is sort of this sense of like this thing he's trying to project and hold on to. That's this uh, to me that poetry is like an image of civilization, and it's like the the race of time and 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 the modern world is keeping um, making that too quick. Even the even that the staff and the um, uh, as they're eating, once he starts to go into his his poetry, the signal is okay. Start eating. Like like we're not gonna we're not gonna wait to hear all of this. And when Zero reads the letter, he's like, "It's forty six stanzas, so we should probably." Start <laughs> he doesn't stop reading, but he's like, "Let's let's all admit we're gonna eat and not really listen to this." I, I also had to think, Sam. Just as a quick aside, I had to think about the fact that you know the film was set in nineteen thirty two. I had to go back right away to Gosford Park. And think about you know that's another film that's trying to capture a particular era though for a very very sort of different purpose. Um, I want to say one more thing before we move on about the layering because I want to connect it back to Stefan Zweig because um, you know you said you didn't realize it was Tom Wilkinson I'd forgotten it was as well but I also forgot that Jude Law uh, was in the film as the younger version of the of the author so all but, but all three of those roles so gustav in 32 and um jude law and then tom wilkinson all of them look like stefan zweig at mm. various points in, in his in his career and stefan zweig um was a very you know a very popular viennese author and it's not as though the film is based on any specific work of his but he fled europe when the war was gathering um came to the u.s briefly ended up in brazil and in 1942, when the war was going very badly for the Allies, um, he and his wife committed mutual suicide. And um, he, the day before he committed suicide, he sent his memoir, The World of Yesterday, off to his publisher. And then basically he had, he had lost all hope uh, in, civil, in European civilization, and that's why he and his wife uh, uh, took their lives. So that, of, of all of Zweig's works, uh, that's how I think this film has been inspired by Zweig, both by his work and by his own life. And I think it's also kind of Anderson saying, we don't have to commit suicide. We don't have to give up on, on civilization. Hmm. That's what it's, it's, Zweig was one of the people I wanted to ask you about because I don't have, I didn't have a reference point for, for him, but it's very, at the end, you know, there, it, there's the dedication to him. Um, let's think, can we talk a little bit about the character of Gustav? Because I don't think, I mean, I, ultimately, I think this is, this is the Zero Mustafa movie. Like it is, it is he telling the story. And I think there's a core of this that is about his sort of coming of age and his dealing with loss. But Gustav is so, it's such a great performance by Ray Fiennes. It's such mm -hmm. a great, such a central character. Um, what I love about him is, is the, uh, 
the way he is presented as, you know, trying to uphold this sort of, you know, dying or dead sense of civilization. So in some ways he's very proper in the way he acts, but it's also punctuated by him being very vulgar too, mm. you know? And like, I love when, uh, and it's like, it's like, he's trying to deal with both of those things. So like when they're on the train with boy with apple and he says, you know, I'll never part with it, all this stuff. And then he said, then like almost a breath later, he says, we should sell it. And then, and then later he's like, whatever we have left after the whores and whiskey, you know, won't be yours. And it's like, okay. So, you know, um, so I, I find him such a, such a fascinating character. And, you know, what I, what I also love is we don't, Zero mentions at one point that he never talks about his past, that he has this mysterious past. Like the only thing we get at the very end is that he was once a lobby boy as well. Mm. Right. So, so, so we get this sense that, that zero is, there may be more alike than we think. Um, Cause we don't know what his, you know, what his, um, what his origin story is. We eventually learn zeros, but we don't learn, we don't learn his. Um, and, and I, I love the, the, at the beginning, Zero is describing the women that um, that Gustav sort of uh, works within the hotel, kind of courts in the hotel as insecure, vain, superficial, blonde, and needy. And then when he gets to the end, he said, "You know, he finally became like the thing, the thing that 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 his patrons were." And he lists those same things again. Um, mm-hmm. And and I just love that he is somebody who, in every moment, kind of knows the right thing to say. Like, 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 you know, um, so, so he's very, very clever in that way. I love that even when he's in prison, you know, like he knows the proper way to be a prisoner. So when zero visits him and he's got a black eye and basically in a, in a much better way says you should see the other guy. And like, you know, I know, I know in a place like this, this is what you, this is what you need to do. Um, and I realized that, um, speaking of a franchise that just had, I think it's 25th installment. Like I have never been a James Bond fan. I think Mm. Gustav is my James Bond. Like he's like this cool (laughs) collected character, but has all these other things too, but like knows how to say and do the right thing in the moment. So, 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 um, um, I also took to connect to Gosford park. I found it really interesting that there's a moment where he basically almost quotes Helen Mirren from Gosford park when he's giving, talking to zero about what it means to be a lobby, lobby boy says, you're supposed to anticipate. You're supposed to know what they want before they want it. Mm. You're, you're supposed to know what they hate and, and not do this. But it was it was so interesting. So it was like when when Helen Mirren says, you know, I'm the perfect, I'm mm. the perfect servant. I'm basically invisible, and I know what they want before they want it. I anticipate, and I was like, well, that's re-. so. So I started to think about Gosford Park when I when he said that line. I was like, mm-hmm. well, this is interesting because this is. He seems more superhero-y, but this this feels this is all this is a uh, an upstairs downstairs movie in a kind of way. Like we're talking about the people in the service industry here, um, you know. But we get uh, you know we get we get a different uh, a different view of it, and they really take center stage in a in a heightened kind of sense. Yeah, I mean Gustav is in many ways he's kind of the essence of the buffetic. You know, and that is the anticlimactic. So he 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 climbs these high heights of propriety and eloquence, and then he undercuts them with vulgar actions or vulgar words. I mean, to me, the kind of the key Gustav moment is when um, Edward Norton's character shows up to to arrest him, and they're standing at the front of the lobby, and they have this very civilized conversation, and suddenly he turns around and runs as fast as he can. It's just, it, and it's it's that wonderful lapse into physical comedy that I think. But I think just it it works really, really well in terms of uh, showing us the kind of 
uh, well, they're contradictions within the character, but they're very human contradictions, right? It's the, it's the notion that uh, he has those kinds of reactions within in, within him that you wouldn't necessarily be be surprised by. So, I it's interesting. The first time I watched the film, I didn't I didn't like his character as much. The first time I, I watched the film, I felt like, oh, he's not really this; he's really that. This time, I had a much easier time saying, he no, he's both. He's both. He's an elevated man of cultural refinement, and he's an absolute realist about how rotten the world is. Uh, and he does both of those things really well. Um, A.O. Scott says he's both an ascetic and essentialist, highly, dis highly disciplined and completely irresponsible. Thoroughly <laughs> ridiculous and at the same time a glimmer of civil civilization. I think that's... I think that's absolutely correct, and I think that that's exactly what Ray Fiennes pulls off. And I love another version of this is I love when he's at the um, at T Tilda Swinton's deathbed, and he's like talking about her, and then all of a sudden, like he's also so observant, but he and he has to comment on like, "Wow, you look great. What kind of cream did they use on you? I would like to get that for myself." And he's like, "Oh, they finally fixed your nails. This is the perfect color." So he's like, he's he's still being the concierge at that moment too of like. Um, yeah, I, I, I just think that's such a, uh, such a rich character. And like you said, it's, it's, it feels contradicting, but it, but in, in lots of ways that it is, it is very consistent, um, you know, within that, um, the, uh, the other thing that I, I'd forgotten talking about people I forgot were in this movie. You had mentioned last week that Saoirse Ronan was in it. And I was like, I don't, I love Saoirse Ronan. I didn't remember. And she's like a really important character in this. I had totally forgotten that that was her, um, but we have this this love story, and I love the way that Zero tells it because the first time he brings up Agatha, it's like he walks right up to talking about her, and then he says, to, "I mean," then it cuts back to F. Murray Abraham and and um and Jula, and he says, "But but we're not going to talk about that." Mm -hmm. And then it's only later when she like needs to be part of the story, and then there's that great moment where he. It, again, I think F. Murray Abraham is phenomenal in this, oh, yes. and I think he carries a lot of the weight. Um, because like when they cut back to him and it's like, he has stopped talking and he's crying and you just realize like, this is a story that he probably thinks a lot about and does not tell a lot. Cause it's hard for him to tell, but this is maybe the magic night when some, when the right person is here to, to hear him tell this story. This may be one of the few times he tells this story because it clearly is so painful to him. Um, I, I love, I love that moment. I love their love story too. Like when he talks about how he proposed on their third date and it was basically like, not that anyone would notice or care that we got in. It's just like, it's like, these are people with nothing to lose. So, so like even their the thought of like, wow, is that impulsive to get married? It's like, well, what do they have to lose? You know, like I, I, I just, I love that in them. Yeah, Sarshi Ronan is back to her. Sarshi Ronan is another actor that was nervous about working with Anderson because she wasn't sure that she could kind of jive with his style. And they they also tried for her character. They tried a number of different accents, uh, and finally they just, they just decided to go with her her native her native accent that does, that that worked best, gave the character the most the most warmth. And then she gets to play such an important role in the uh, the Prison Break, um, which is. Again, it's it is a genre that I love. I love like the the intricately planned prison break and just to sort of sneak that into a movie like this as well. And it's so so it's like you get this little version of like a a more madcap uh, Shawshank Redemption here, right? Where they're like you know all of the little pieces. I love the the gang that he that he sort of 
connects with and that one of the gang members is the guy he beat up because <laughs> uh, like even when he talks with zero that first time he's like oh he's turned into a delightful friend and it's like he's, <laughs> he's pinky's part of the gang there i love that harvey Keitel is basically just playing winston wolf like from from um going back to tarantino like even the way he talks the way he explains things it's like that is exactly the way winston wolf talks as he's helping um helping Jules and, and Vincent out in um, in shot or in uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, but the idea of like sneaking in the, the tools and the pastries and even just the, the, the guard who's going through everything that was sent in. I mean, it's yeah. sort of this little moment about art too. He opens it up and he's like, as a good German, he respects like, 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 like he respects the baked good and is like, I'm not going to cut this, this, you know, uh, but that inside each of those are these little rock hammers and stuff. It's such a, it's such like a, a funny thing. Um, and, I think A.O. Scott said that like the prison break moment is is the epitome, like the most Wes Anderson-y thing you could imagine, like these tools hidden in these perfect pastries and these perfect boxes getting getting sent in. Um, And then but then that also the prison break also leads to the this like really pivotal, powerful moment when um, when the rest of the gang leaves and it's just zero there to, to pick up Gustav. And Gustav is initially just really angry with him because like, he's forgotten. I mean, it's a funny scene. Cause they go through like, you know, Oh, he didn't find a safe house. And he's like, okay, you know, you didn't, you didn't get the, you didn't get the disguises and zero's <laughs> like, I didn't think it would be realistic, <laughs> but then he didn't remember the perfume, which I mean, speaks to like the vanity thing and, and that, but then that's his breaking point. Right. And then he's like, well, why did you even come here? Why did you immigrate here? Why did you leave your, and he's like very, you know, uh, more than dismiss. I was going to say dismissive, but more than that about about Zero's home, right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and and then Zero's answer is just you know, the war. They killed my father. They killed. They executed everybody else. The war is why I'm here. And then all of a sudden, like we see Gustav snap into something different, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, you're a refugee." Uh, everything I just said was off. Like, like I, I really liked that moment. And then what I love is that that Zero ends that by saying we're brothers, right? And right. it's like it's so, so like the the and at that point the relationship the dynamics of that relationship shift at that moment. And 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 Zero's more inclined to push back at him a little bit than, but they still you know go on their adventure from there. But um, but I just love that whole sequence in the middle of the film. Well, it's almost as though for a moment, Gustav channels the very fascism that uh, that he ultimately is going to be killed by. Um, so again, it's another way in which Gustav kind of describes this this arc. He's almost he's almost an everyman character in that sense. So he can he can express these fascist opinions, but then he can become compassionate and human again. So he himself has within him that capability for the the slaughterhouse mentality. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then this leads to. Uh... One of a, a tiny sequence that I love. I would watch a whole movie about the Society of the Cross. Of course, yes, yes. I mean, again, I, if um, no, I realize I'm crossing, I'm crossing franchises here. But if Gustav is my is my James Bond, Society of Cross Keys is my like Marvel Avengers. Like, I just want to <laughs> see that superhero movie. I love when he when when he's like beginning to tell Zero about it, and he's like. You know, you can't tell anybody about this, but he's like, how do you think you get aisle seats in the third row at the <laughs> opera? How do you get a reservation at this? And then, you know, and then he makes these calls and you just see this series of calls of like all of these concierges that are, you know, together can kind of, that they, that in, in essence, that they're the people who run the world in their eyes, that they mm-hmm. have the power to do all of these things because they both, it's like they know the secrets of the wealthy and powerful, but they also know 
the oper- how things operate and that this is you know that that this is where the the true power of the world is i'm also a sucker for like a secret society being you know and this is a pretty benign secret society i, I kind of love it but it's also but again if i'm back to where we started with wes anderson and the awareness of artifice right at the same time it's like okay now I'm going to get to see some of the usual Wes Anderson people that don't otherwise have a big part in this film. So, so there they are. You kind of tick them off, you know, Jason Schwartzman and Owen Wilson and Bob Balaban. And so it's like you're, you're enjoying it as, as within the plot of the movie, but at the same time, you're just enjoying it because you just love to see these people, Bill Murray showing up. Um, uh, I'm just going running through my notebook here because because we're 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 running running up to our time here. Um, I love the the fra- the the two train encounters, sort of the framing of those and how, mm. in some ways, they're they're set up very similarly. But there's there there are sort of the slight differences that that you know that lead to the different ends. You know, in some ways, that the Edward Norton character isn't there to be this one thing to reach back to this again, reaching back to the past, right? That's the mm-hmm. thing that protects them, you know, in that moment. Do you have thoughts on, on, I mean, there's, we, there's all kinds of characters. We haven't even, we haven't talked about the Jeff Goldblum character, mm-hmm. the Clinton character, the Adrian Brody character. Do you have anybody you want to, you want to talk about or anything else you want to talk about? Well, I, you, you just mentioned one of the ones I wanted to talk about is I, I love the Jeff Goldblum character um, because he, he doesn't really understand the world he's living in. I, 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 I mean, he's like, he's going along his own little path and he has absolutely no idea how little weight that's actually going, going to pull. And I just like Jeff Goldblum. He's just one of those actors when he shows up, I just enjoy him. So I, I, I really appreciated him. Well, I think actually his is a really interesting part to think about, you know, if we're thinking about the sort of, you know, rise of fascism and, and some of these things, because now I, I realize he's not killed by the, the, the Nazi type characters, mm-hmm. but there is this sense where he's, he's sort of a figure who stands in for like the normal operations rule of law. Like when mm-hmm. he's talking with, with, um, with Dimitri and he says, well, you know, technically I work for the deceased cause I'm the exec. And he's always like, well, these are the things that protect me. These are, and then you realize like, but if people want what they want, it's, it does, those things are those things break down in yeah. those moments, right? So he's the the symbol of the breakdown of sort of normal law. If Gustav is the breakdown, you know, trying to uphold this quote unquote civilization, he's trying to uphold the rule of law, and we see those things break down in those moments. Um, one thing I just need to say for my wife's sake, the Tilda Swinton character is so interesting because you know she's very very much aged up. Do you know who the original? Um, actress for that role is it's one of Angela. my wife's all-time favorite actresses angela lansbury yeah i would have loved to have seen angela yeah. lansbury in this movie i just just need to say that last question i have for you because this name came up in so many reviews and it's somebody that i know by name because he's actually i think mentioned in um sullivan's travels but who's ernst lubish oh sam that's such a good question thank you um er- ernst lubish is is kind of known for making these very, um, well, he makes comedies, he makes comedy dramas. We're talking from the silent uh, film era into the 30s and 40s. Uh, he was known for what was called the Lubitsch Touch. Um, and Billy Wilder worked with him actually early, early in his career. And Lubitsch was just known for putting together these very kind of suave and inventive comedies that also often had a kind of uh, serious touch to them. And I was going to say that the two Lubitsch films that really relate to Grand Budapest Hotel are uh, Ninochka 
from 1939, which is Greta, uh, Greta Garbo film. And then the most important one that I really wanted to watch with our folks, but is not available uh, in either of our usual platforms is To Be or Not To Be with Jack Benny and Carol Lombard. That film is a masterpiece. And it's an example of a film made during the war, made in 42, and he's already managing to satirize the Nazis. It was remade years later by Mel Brooks and I couldn't bring myself to watch it. Um, but the Jack Benny, Carol Lombard film is an absolute masterpiece. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure there's a specific Lubitsch film that influences Anderson, but I think there's a Lubitsch sensibility uh, and mm -hmm. certainly a lot of the, a lot of the settings and the, the echo 1930s Hollywood echoes some of Lubitsch's uh, films. Anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Uh, one thing I want to talk about before I do, I'm going to ask you a question. Did you yes. spot the George Clooney cameo? I did. Uh, you know, I both times I watched it, I thought, is that George Clooney? Because yeah. it's a quick shot of him his him popping out of a hotel room. Yeah, yeah he's involved in that. Okay, I really wondered if that was him, and I wasn't sure. That was. Um, so, yeah, the, the only other thing I want to say is I kind of want to go back to an earlier theme and, and emphasize it a little bit, and that is um, – I love a quote that A.O. Scott says. He says that um, the, 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 uh, these films fight, that uh, is both Lubitsch and um, Anderson, they fight tyranny with irony, frivolity, and unshakable charm. And he says that they are inadequate and perhaps inappropriate weapon, weapons against tanks and secret policemen, but if you can make a mockery of history, you can turn its horrors into a series of graceful jokes and mischievous gestures. You can think of it as escapism, you can also think of it as revenge. And I want to use that to go back to one of our very early films, and that is Sullivan's Travels. Um, you know, it's not that there were that, that Sturgis had a particular political message, although he was fighting what was then the Depression. But the idea that humor is a weapon, uh, and even if and, and, and it's even if it doesn't defeat the tanks in a realistic sense, it it keeps something in the human spirit alive, a spirit of resistance alive. That's great. So what do you have for us for next week? Well, we are going to do an Ernst Lubitsch film, okay. even if we can't do it to be or not to be. So I want to do the shop around the corner, awesome. um, which was, uh, which was one of Lubitsch's pet projects. Uh, and it's a, a Jimmy Stewart film and, uh, um, Margaret Sullivan. And it is of course the model for uh, sleepless in Seattle. Uh, sleepless Seattle is basically a remake of shot, a little shop around the shop around the corner. So that's, uh, that's our next venture. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, um, for recommending this film. By the time this episode drops, I think I will have seen the French dispatch. I'm hopefully going to see that Saturday. Um, that's at least our plan. Um, this was a really great conversation. I, I loved this movie when I saw it in the theater, but I have so much more, uh, depth in how I think about it now by by watch rewatching it this week, reading about it, having this conversation. So I can't thank you enough for that. That is all the time we have. We will be back next week to talk about shop around the corner in the video store. <laughs>